So welcome to uh, Crossover Zero Ambitions CIH podcast in response to Scotland's Festival of Housing 2022. It's myself, Dan Hyde from Zero Ambitions and Everything is User Experience with Callum. How do you pronounce your surname? I really struggle on that. <laughs> it's Home Homechuk. Homechuk. So... Callum, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Callum Homechuk. I'm the National Director of CIH, Chartered Institute of Housing Scotland. And Duncan Smith. Hi, I'm Duncan Smith. I am a board member of the Chartered Institute of Housing Scotland, and I'm also the Chief Operating Officer of the AECB. So we were talking with Callum. To be honest, we were angling for an invitation to the Festival of Housing so we could <laughs> come along and meet people. And Duncan volunteered a couple of us to head up there and see if we could do a bit of crossover podcast because there's a lot we have in common in terms of, as a podcast, Zero Ambitions is focused on the built environment, sustainability, net zero goals, and increasingly we talk about retrofit. So that will come up in the episodes. And yeah, the Chartered Institute of Housing, well, I mean, this touches everything you're about at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's so, you know, we, we had our housing festival. It was a kind of opportunity to bring hundreds of folk back into a conference um, for the first time in a couple of years. So obviously that's the point of any conference. Yeah, it's the point of any trade conference you do that. And like the big issues are, exactly as you said, Dan, we talk about zero carbon housing. We're talking about kind of human rights. You talk about anything and everything that touches the housing system. Affordability comes up um, time and time again, tenants' rights and that's the idea, and obviously you guys were good enough to come along and help support that and challenge us a bit on some of the sessions that you took part in, and hopefully, hopefully get a little bit of interesting insight from some of the speakers. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and and push them, push them a bit, and actually get because essentially the whole point of any of these discussions is to push people and trying to get them to a point where they're starting to think a little bit more, including us. You know, start to think a little bit more thoughtfully about this and come in. You might come in with your own. I think this, and I don't think that. And then someone challenges you, and you're like, oh, actually, you've got a good point. And that's that was the whole point. And that's the whole idea of the Housing Festival. So, I mean, you guys were there. Um, I hope it, everybody felt it went well. Um, I did. And, yeah, it's just that it's an opportunity for us to perhaps work together. Yeah, well, I mean, it was really good. We were – so we were – coming down to attend some of the sessions, some of the panels, and then we were going to capture the panels, put them in a windowless room, stick a microphone in front of them and make them talk a bit more. You know, in the spirit of getting an opportunity to capture the things you wished you'd had an opportunity to say on stage or the things you've thought of since. The, the panels were broadly presentations. So this was an opportunity to speak with a bit more fluidity and for the panellists to respond to each other. And as you said, Callum, we had a chance to be a bit provocative, which at points we were. I mean, it was really good fun. It was really nice to meet the people and to have a wonder about the day. Like, there was too much for us to take in. Um, And apologies for some of the sound quality. It was a little bit chaotic, a big empty room, a single microphone, but it settles down after a little while. So stick with it. We looked at the, we attended the first session, the right to a home. So housing as a human right. We attended the session about the private rented sector, where it was a a whole UK pan-British Isles look at the private rented sector. So there were representatives from all sectors who all had something to say about their perspectives on the market. And we were hoping to have a chance to get... Laurie McElroy and Gillian Campbell, who have been instrumental in the the Renfrewshire housing project that Duncan has been very close to. But sadly, it just wasn't possible. So that's a big retrofit of thousands of units of housing stock. 
within Renfrewshire. But if you ever get a chance to catch them, they're well worth checking out. Yeah, it was a it was really really interesting day. So the first record that we've got is the the Right to a Home session featuring sure. Mike Daly, solicitor, advocate, and principal solicitor for the Govan Law Centre. Dr. Elaine Webster, who's a director of the Centre for the Study of Human Rights Law and a senior lecturer at Strathclyde University. And Francia Kelly, chief executive of Blackwood Homes and Care. That's an organisation focused on, so a housing organisation focused on ensuring the rights and independence of disabled people. So they're quite focused on innovation and legislation. They each gave a, a presentation about changes to human rights law, the need for stronger rights and dignity within the housing sector for people trying to access it who may be in distress or from a marginalised position. And Frontier offered quite a specific discussion of housing with relation to people suffering from disability. Yeah, what did you think of the sessions, Callum? Well, I think, for, so let's kick off, yeah, so human rights want to start with. So human rights is like it's a massively interesting, totally opaque subject, right? No, everybody means something different regarding human rights. It has a pretty bad name and sort of popular press about kind of you know, human rights activists, human rights lawyers, and it, it does get kind of mud thrown at it. Fundamentally, it's got a set of principles to actually improve the, the outcomes of anybody. You're talking about today in housing, we talked about it the other week about housing, it's much broader than that. And actually, it, what's really interesting is we are trying, we're seeing it applied to kind of more and more things that are kind of in the popular press. So you've had you know, we'll look back the last few years, we've had clearly Grenfell, biggest absolute housing disaster this country's had in a hell of a long time. Kind of actually the absolute failure of um, kind of housing organisations to actually look after tenants. You can't think of a greater failure in um, housing policy and practice. You look at the kind of ITN exposés recently, you know, last couple of years, looking at, you know, Scotland isn't caught up in that, but we're totally naive to think there isn't bad practice like that in Scotland. Let's, let's not kid ourselves. But absolutely, I really kind of positive expose and in fact actually we're kind of shining a light on bad practice and actually making it kind of, people are getting remedies to that and now you've got the kind of new kind of the social media kind of campaigner who's then kind of the quadro who's then again taking that itn expose much further now these are all little bits of pockets right these are just people doing a bit of work here and a bit of work there that's not a fundamental change to the housing system but actually what human rights does is to say right these are absolutes these are absolute rights that you have. The state, the local authority, the association, whoever you are, the private landlord cannot drop below that. That is your guarantee. We will guarantee you this. We need to agree exactly with that, but we will guarantee you that as a minimum. And then what we want to do is we want to go beyond that over time. We want to progressively realise higher rights for you. Because do you know what? We recognise that human rights and housing are absolutely integral to everything you do, whether you want to go to school, whether you want a job, your life chances. And you're like... That is, I mean, that's exciting. That, I mean, how we do that, how we agree the rights, how we pay for them is massively complicated. And that's a fight for generations, to be honest, because we'll never be settled, we'll never be satisfied, we'll never do enough. But that's a that's a really important battle to have. So let's say what that minimum level of rights are that everybody has, you know, stuff around how affordable it should be, the kind of zero carbon stuff that will kind of come to an accessibility because more and more people live older, but maybe get a bit more in firms, we need to be more accessible. All these things we need to consider. Um, and I, I think human rights for me kind of starts to frame the detail of that a bit. Um, but we need to say, what's the choices? What do you, how do you pay for this? Who pays for it? Does the, the state pay for it? Do individuals pay for it? And that's, we don't have answers to that yet. It's interesting getting the different perspectives as well, because it's not just about the legalities of the situation. It's about what should be a human right. We talk about so uh, the exploitation of immigrants, asylum seekers comes up uh, within the conversation. But 
I was delighted for Francia to talk about the the right to dignity, which should come for people who live within social care or the private rented sector who have disabilities. Because like this sort of thing could strike us at any point. My mum became disabled three, four years ago now. It's hard to remember. Time flies by. But like suddenly being aware of how inhospitable her own home is to her. Man, it's really staggering. And if one is living within the private rented sector or even one's own home, currently there's little in place to really grant you a right to a better quality of life. I think within one of the presentations, we were treated to a video that included a woman who lived in a top floor flat or a high level flat. She found herself disabled uh, in a chair. She couldn't open some of the doors in her home and there was no way she could easily navigate those stairs. And so she was rehomed, rehoused with much more hospitable accommodation, hospitable in terms of, you know, drawers that open to render them accessible to her, doors that she can pull that aren't too heavy because like a fire door is a brilliant thing in preventing a fire. But if you're not very strong or you're coming at it from a poor angle, like, well, it's no use to you, is it? Yeah, no, I mean, things. human rights is not a minority pursuit. It sometimes it gets framed as if like yeah. this wee group of people who are looking to exploit the system for their own benefit. Human, it's, it's, it's what it is intent. Human rights, it's for all of us, because totally, as you said, Dan, our life changes all the time. You know, the size of our families, our mobility, our income, it all changes. But having that framework of support that guarantees certain things that, you know, we will help could help us in our life, but provides that stability and that support, that assurance is something that everybody wants. That is ultimately what it's about. And it's just for us to agree what the, the, the specifics are of that. But the principle that we should all benefit from having that security of a housing so that we can leave our house, so we can have relationships with people, so we can have a, a reasonable standard of living doesn't seem unreasonable to me. Yeah. And, uh, oh, we didn't mention that Gavin Smart the CIH CEO joined us for, for this particular session. Yeah, he he proved a, a really positive uh, influence on the conversation. Incredibly optimistic uh, in the face of so much of the negativity we were presenting him with. He had a delightful anecdote to throw in there about counting sheep, which we'll leave for them who make it all the way to the end. All right, well, shall we let it roll? Please bear with the sound quality. It's not perfect. It definitely gets better. There's a bit of background noise, but we'll definitely get it better for next time. We'll have at least two microphones, I'm sure. All right. Let's let's let it roll. So, given that this this session is about housing as a human right, what what sort of things were you wanting to? Well, um, do you want to take a seat? Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll so we yeah, we can we can start now. Well, what struck me about the conversation that everyone was having was that the common aspect that links the three subjects you were talking about, which are related but distinctly different, was that people. And humanity was lacking, was the reason you were talking about it, the lack of humanity, the lack of consideration of the people. And this is why, it, in terms of the, the legal frameworks <clears throat> guaranteeing or not yeah. people adequate accommodation when they're in the most dire need, I mean, they're being offered administrative solutions that are woefully inadequate to bricks and mortar problems. Yeah. Like, you know, you said it yourself, like, Bricks and mortar is the strongest investment. Yeah. It's the, the best return. Like, how on earth do we, do we manage that? And similarly, the, the lack of consideration of one's dignity, usually, we were just talking, my mum's relatively recently become disabled, so we've been living through that. And then the need for new legislation to guarantee a right, a human right to dignity. 
to have your humanity acknowledged. I mean, it's preposterous that we've got to do that at all. <laughs> when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. How do we find ourselves in this position? So, uh, so I'm, I'm the least expert person on the panel, but I guess what's, what struck me was probably two things. So it was that um, you know, most systems have got an uh, inherent amount of inbuilt failure in them. They don't work for everybody. And the reason why you end up with legal safeguards and with regulatory systems as well, actually, is to try to deal with system failure, yeah. Where, yeah. where people are not either, their needs are not adequately met by the system or, or there's market failure. And I, I think that's why you end up with these frameworks of rights, because they say, we hold this is very, very important and it should be protected uh, and, it, and it should be made apparent to people. Hmm. The, the thing that I was interested in, what, what all, all three panellists said, was in different ways, and perhaps you said it at the end, the fact that we know we can't do all of it now is not, is not a reason not to adopt the right and not a reason not to start. Because actually you can start knowing that you're not quite there yet. If you wait for it to be perfect, you'll never start. Yeah. So we might as well start now and have an ambition and say we're not at the ambition yet. Hmm. But, but let's set our stall out, try to describe what we think good looks like, and then work really hard to get there. And I think then the ambition will keep moving too, because yeah. they'll never achieve it. I always think, you know, perfect isn't what we're after. It's keeping yeah. it going. I think the system thing's incredibly important in it, because in that short time um, on the panel, we're talking really about some of the individual experiences that illuminate what something like adequate housing would look like. But it's how you translate that into a system, um, into standards, isn't it? Um, that's really the important bit of how you lift those standards. And for me, it's actually increased expectations. Mm. We've got a great inclination to dampen expectations, including our own. And I actually think we should be doing the opposite. Mm. Yeah, and just for the sake of the podcast, the first speaker there was Gavin uh, Smart and followed by Frontier Kelly. Uh, we have the, the, the full team assembled <laughs> now. Yeah. Can, can I give maybe just an example? I, mean, I was talking about the case that had argued and won very recently in the court session, uh, X against Glasgow City Council. And I think what that case is about is, is a refugee family involving four children, three daughters, one son who's severely uh, disabled, living in temporary homeless accommodation uh, in a three-bedroom, relatively quite small flat. The council's own occupational therapy report says that you need a minimum of four bedrooms because of the because of the severe autism. What we then find is the argument from the local authority to say, well, okay, this the Scottish Parliament has passed these improvements to the uh, relevant legislation, but we think, even although they're very explicit and very specific uh, and very quite powerful, uh, but we think it's just a discretion we have regard. Uh, and the court said, no, it's an absolute duty. It's been a very interesting case in England, the Court of Appeal, slightly different, but a homeless case yeah. on that similar point. But I just mention this because I think what I was trying to convey uh, this morning, um, and obviously Elaine is talking about her work in terms of the human rights uh, being incorporated, which is fantastic, is that we've already got lots of rights which are good, but it's hard to make them real because not only do you have to get the case, well, one, try and get legal aid, one, get it into court, da-da-da-da-da, uh, and, then, and, then, and then you have to try and win that case. But if you think about, um, I mean, just to give an example, uh, one of the things that came out in the case this week when we were getting the orders implemented was um, there's, there's hundreds of people in this city, just Glasgow alone, who require larger accommodation because of particular needs, whether disabled or just the numbers of, of children 
and they're languishing sometimes for a decade in accommodation that's not suitable. So on the one hand, I say we've got these rights. We're going to, as Elaine uh, can talk about, we're going to increase them. Brilliant. But unless we do something about the physical infrastructure in terms of resourcing housing associations, local government, I just think, how do we square those two things? Exactly. Well, I mean, this is what I wanted to ask you, Elaine. Like, the way you describe the changes to legislation, it all sounds really positive. But as you just alluded, there is, there's a lot already there which could be done. And we're talking about situations where in the accommodation circumstances you're talking about, well-documented negative outcomes. Yeah. It's financially unsustainable. Yeah. It's horrible. Like, it just doesn't work. And often it's illegal by technicality. Well, unlawful, yeah. I mean, and, and, and I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I was on the board of the housing regulator for eight years and we get reports um, in terms of the number of time, number of times that local authorities across Scotland have failed to meet the requirements in terms of homelessness legislation, i.e. acting unlawfully. It's in the hundreds every yeah. other period. But you sounded really hopeful uh, <coughs> in what you were saying. Like, what gives you the hope in this particular situation? I'm a hopeful person, <laughs> generally. Um, I think it's it's like the mo- it's the most ambitious we can be in terms of human rights legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, even in some cases, the the new framework will go beyond what international human rights law demands. So, in terms of human rights, there is there is no better structure. So, when we think about human rights implementation in terms of structure process and outcomes. The legal framework is part of the structure mm-hmm. um, and we need that structure to be effective, um, i.e. it has to cover the ground that it needs to cover, it has to put in place access to a remedy and so on. So we have a very um, disparate structure at the moment um, and there's not really a great human rights framework. They've been there in international law since the 1970s yeah. But they're not effective um, either in policy or in law currently. So when we take this step to make the structure the best it can be, then I'm hopeful because that's all there is. And that should potentially mitigate or ameliorate some of the, the friction uh, that makes it difficult to get, get the results we, we want or need. If it's done well, mm. it will. And I think there is a real recognition <coughs> that... This is about a need for a transformative shift in how human rights are implemented and given effect in a way that impacts positively on people's lives. There is a need to take the legislation out of the legal sphere, Mm. in a sense, in terms of its practice. It's about the day-to-day implementation. It's the realisation, you know, both for individuals. But, you know, for me, when I go back to those kinds of situations, and I don't know, you know, any detail on the one in Glasgow, but I've been on the side of being the provider both in local authority and housing association. And, for example, you could easily see there aren't many um, bigger houses suitable for people with disability that then happen to come free at the right time even over a period of years so i i understand the constraints on the stop type 
Um, and how far you can plan for that is always going to be an interesting discussion in itself. But equally, there have often been solutions, and I'm sure we'll have been in and out of this one, where you end up maybe putting two houses together. Um, yeah. That sort of solution that is then quite individual, which yeah. it should be, because yeah. it's how you manage to deliver the right um, and the dignity for people. But but there's there's going to be some kind of, I don't mean parameters, but there will be these outliers where the stock type will not fit that very specific type of demand. Sure. And therefore, that's what we've always got to be able to kind of accommodate how we deal with those things. Uh, uh, with a bit of creativity, um, the right, that's why I mean for me, it's about the people at all levels of the organisation understanding very early on that rather than saying no, they start to go, right, how do we do this? Yeah. Um, and that's well, important but for me. To one degree or another, everyone spoke about capacity building and the bricks and mortar, as you mm. mentioned during your, your response to a question, yeah. like it's the soundest investment historically, mm. but investing in bricks and mortar is going to get increasingly difficult. With what's happening in Ukraine, prices are already rising. Access to materials is diminishing. Access to labour is increasingly a problem within the British Isles, so costs, inflation. I mean, we talked about it with regard to rents specifically, but retrofitting buildings to suit tenants and accommodate them, finding new buildings to accommodate more people to provide better housing. Like, how are we going to deal with this? Like, so I'm a bit of an optimist on on this, which is going to sound strange to say, because I spent most of my life making the case for, for more housing, more investment, telling governments they're not doing enough, and then saying it's, it's all hopeless, so we'll have to try harder. But um, it, it, it seems to me that it's really important to, re, to remember that I think both this debate and actually the, the retrofit debate as well is a this is a long term issue that we're talking about dealing with, and actually some of the really worrying problems that you were talking about are probably short to medium term problems, and in the long term may not persist. So we have to plan for the long term, and we, we have to assume that actually some of the wrinkles will, will come, yeah. come out and wash. Um, the other thing that I'm acutely aware of is that um, these really sort of massive systemic change type problems, usually they end up being solved by means that you're not aware of at the point at which you start. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you could, I was a terrible A-level history student, but I vaguely remember being taught about Thomas Malthus, that, you know, that weird clergyman with the counting obsession, who went out of the country first counting sheep, then cows, then people, and then decided it's no good, we're all going to die because we're going to starve to death, there's too many people. Uh, what was wrong with his logic was he didn't understand that there was going to be an agricultural revolution which would change the productivity mm. yeah. of the country and we would be able to feed ourselves after all. And I think this, we don't yet know the solutions that we will put in place to deal with this. So we have to travel in hope as much as an expectation. You do now what you can do now, but be kind of hungry and greedy for new ideas. Because my guess is that the way in which we deal with some of these problems in the longer term will be we will use responses, technologies, uh, processes, behaviours that we haven't yet discovered. And, and that's why I think I was really enthusiastic about what everyone in the panel said, which is just start now. You know, yeah. the, the most important thing is to start, start trying. And if you, even if you don't know how you're going to finish the journey, mm. start, because that creates the demand, that creates the conversation. Mm. And I expect that some of the things that feel impossible now, we will discover are not impossible as we work through. And I think that fits entirely for me. Um, you know, obviously, I believe you start now, if not yesterday. Um, I, 
And for us, the, the way we try to run the organisation is you do what you do well every day. You often get it wrong, but you put it right when you can. Um, but coming up with those kind of creative solutions at Frontline and empowering your people to do that, they have the freedom to do it, is where those kinds of things should never really come to you know, a, much, a, a much different level. Um, but So that side of it, alongside, keep doing what you're doing really well every day, but then alongside it, innovating for the future and keeping the curiosity about how those things change. For me, that's what makes it interesting as well. So the digital technology that's around that will change how people can access things mm. is, I'm hoping it'll do it for me uh, someday soon, uh, is, is just so important. And it's there, it, but it, we can't really see, even in the next five years, exactly how that's going to mm. come into play. But it is there. Um, we do a lot of work with Harriet Watt, you know, Edinburgh Uni, uh, to really understand how technology can be used in these situations to change the offer we have for people as yeah. well, and how they can take more control themselves on how they want to live. I mean, I, I think that's all true. Um, <clears throat> what I would say, I mean, I'm optimistic too. I mean, I remember I spent some time as a member of the Scottish Government's Homelessness and Rough Sleeper Action Group. And we came up with lots of proposals that was taken on board by COSLA and by the Scottish Government. And that's resulted in lots of good, positive changes in terms of not just policy and practice, but additional legal rights. <clears throat> but I think what kind of troubles me is that if you look at homelessness, for example, sure, we made some great progress in terms of housing first, in terms of rough sleeping. So we've managed to kind of, and that's, that, that's the tip of the iceberg. But we've managed to, I often think that was the most, you know, shocking tip of the iceberg. And we've managed to do something really quite significant about that. I, I've, and I'm really delighted about that. But in terms of what's rest, the rest of that iceberg under the sea, we just don't have enough social icing. And so, sure, we can't just build an extra 110,000 overnight. It's a tough thing to do in terms of getting the, the, the finance and the, the construction and all the rest of it. But for example, there's things that we can do. For example, there's lots of empty houses across Scotland. We could buy them up, you know. I remember pushing this in, in, in Glasgow because Govanhill is the most multi-ethnically diverse um, uh, community in all of Scotland and there's always been a place for immigration <clears throat> and exploitation by unscrupulous criminal landlords and gang masters who would never do any works to the property. So you have a huge amount of private stock, which is literally crumbling. Um, and so we, we managed to use compulsory purchase from the, the local authority, working with a local governmental housing association, take over those properties, turn them into beautiful homes. You know, so it seems to me, yeah. if the will is there, there's things we could do quite quickly, relatively quickly, in terms of you know, what we've been talking about. I accept long, long term, a lot of work to be done, but I do think there's things that could be done you know, in the short to medium term that can make a huge difference. I think it's absolutely right on the private rent, etc. And it's a wee while since I've worked closely on, the, on that, but I definitely think we should be on that lawn. We should be taking it back in terms yes. of the movement that there's been in the tenures in, in Scotland. And we should be showing that there's ways that you can do that. You can invest in it, you can own it, you can give security a tenure. It's more of those things. There's definitely scope in Scotland for that. Yeah, I, I was a member of, a, I think, of the Affordable Housing Commission, which was chaired by Lord Best, 
And one of the conclusions the Affordable Housing Commission came to, which I think was again something that each of the panelists said, was that if you look across the UK, it was more England focused, but it did have a bit of a UK focus as well. It, it said essentially our private rental sector has grown too large. Yeah. It mm-hmm. is too big for for um, uh, for, the, for the size of our market, and we now expect it to play a role that it cannot play. Yes. Mm-hmm. So so that that was not only talking about you know, the, the the worst of the uh, you know, egregious property condition problems at the bottom end of the PRS, but it was also saying, actually, we're expecting it now to house people, types of households, people in types of situations, which it was never set up to do. It's not engineered to do it, and it, it will fail. Uh, and the, the conclusion of the Affordable Housing Commission was that one of the things that needed to happen was a rebalancing in our, in our tenure mix, which was partly about shrinking the private sector and partly about growing particularly the social affordable sector, to, to get a mix of housing that is more suited to the, the demands that are out there. You know, the demands that are out there do not balance well with the shape of our national housing stock. It's, it's true in Scotland as much as it's true in England, and it, and it does need to be, to be addressed. And you're right, you can start now. Uh, and momentum is everything. Start with what you can do and keep going. And I think that the perspective is really important, and that's what human rights law, the new human rights framework, will bring as well is about how do you how are you prompted to innovate in order to find solutions what's the ultimate driving factor um, you know who are the ultimate beneficiaries and human rights law doesn't demand a particular outcome for anyone it doesn't demand um, that things happen overnight but it demands a certain perspective a focus on the rights holder a focus on the entitlement so to understand why the human rights framework and the human rights perspective is important and to understand what that entitlement means, then it, it shifts perspective. And I think that does prompt innovation. Yeah. And really the whole human rights framework internationally was created because there was a sense that we need to do better. Universally, the international community needs to do better. And those rights were laid out at you know, post Second World War, at a time when you know many societies were, you know, like completely on their knees, and yet there was the aspiration and uh, a commitment to take that perspective and work towards it. And it's still relatively early days, really. And I think that we are really at the forefront of trying to figure out how do we take that perspective, how do we respect those values think about the entitlement that's inherent in human rights and give effect to those in creative ways. I wanted to ask Elena a question, because as a total non-expert on uh, constitutions and and human rights law, as as I was listening to the session, I was thinking, on the one hand, I think this is absolutely extraordinary and brilliant that this is happening, that Scotland's got this kind of world-dealing framework. And on the other hand, I was thinking, and in a different way, it's entirely unremarkable because actually across the political spectrum, we have always agreed that we need to rely on the state to deliver certain outcomes which we think are important, but which we cannot deliver individually. And we, we look to the state to deliver uh, security, uh, protection of law of contract, uh, you know, all sorts of outcomes. We say we need to do these things collectively and we choose the state as the vehicle for doing that. And, Housing as a human right feels to me to be be the use of the same kind of logic. I mean, as somebody who's a complete non-expert and non-lawyer, it felt like it was a natural step. Does that make sense? Yes, and it is because human rights law is is not a horizontal legal system. It's about that vertical relationship between people who live within the state and the state and those who act on behalf of the state. 
something that it, it does require is proactive obligations on the part of the state. That's part of giving effect to the rights. Mm. So therefore, it is also about the private sector and about how the state intervenes in that and regulates that. So it does, human rights law inevitably yeah. brings, it, brings it back to the state, but there are a whole range of stakeholders involved. Yeah, I agree with everything that both of you just said, but I just want to be a little bit constructive challenge. I, I did uh, a test case called Ali Iraq uh, in, in Scotland's Supreme Court, uh, court session, and that was about lock change by Circle. Circle were employed by the Home Office to provide accommodation for asylum seekers. Mm -hmm. And all of the asylum seekers in Scotland effectively are in Glasgow. And when, it's a long story, but suffice it to say, what the court ruled was uh, that Circle, although they were acting on behalf of the Home Office, uh, they weren't covered as a public body under the uh, relevant section of the Human Rights Act in 1998. To my great horror, because what what and we see this now in terms of the whole crazy notion of mm-hmm. shipping people uh, from the UK to, to Rwanda, which is just the most egregious thing I think I've ever heard. It, we see effectively the private put it like this to, to come back to Lane's point. It's quite frightening to me that we can get around the Human Rights Act through privatisation. Yeah. You know, I think we need to do something about that because that is horrifying. Because I don't think it was intended, but we've got a decision, in certainly in Scotland, that allows that for asylum seekers. Yeah. I, I wonder about that. If you remember the spy cops, uh, the response to the, the spy cops scandal that ran years ago, this might not fit into the podcast, <laughs> but the, uh, oh, Mark, I can't remember his surname, uh, the, the, the fellow who'd had the child with the uh, protester, well... The police used a private company to set up yeah. their, their spy cop group as a means of avoiding scrutiny. Yeah. So they couldn't be prosecuted under the same terms. They didn't have to. They weren't. They didn't have the same sorts of public transparency or accountability because of things like commercial sensitivity. Yeah. Like this is not an accident that this happens. It is and not. And if when we were talking about say temporary homeless accommodation. Um, using B&Bs and homeless hotels and all the rest of it, there is a lacuna in the law because, and I, I think it was the one you made about that, 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 that private sector was never designed to provide services to really vulnerable people. Never, ever yeah, was. Yeah. And here's, here's the reason I say it's a lacuna in the law. They're not regulated by the Care Commission because they don't actually provide any care. Mm-hmm. So it's a real gap in the law that you've got the most vulnerable people in society in places that are not designed to do anything other than make as much money as they can. And that's why I think there's an easy, quick fix that we could set up emergency accommodation in the public social rented sector. We can put a hole. Let's be optimistic. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Always. (laughs) Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening. That's the, the first CIH Zero Ambitions crossover podcast. Hopefully... One of many more to come. Uh, I think out of the course of that, we found a, an opportunity to, to get Callum back on and hopefully Gavin Smart, uh, your CEO, to discuss yep. a few few really interesting issues, particularly with regard to, to the sustainability of social housing in terms of the economics, not just in terms of energy efficiency and carbon. But yeah, if you want to check out our podcast, Zero Ambitions podcast, uh, it's on all the apps. 
And where can we get the the CIH podcast? We'll put it in our show notes. Equally, Dan, you can get it on kind of all the available apps and the CIH.org website. It's kind of downloadable from there. Belton, and if you know how to get in touch with us, tell us what you think. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. But we're not going to make it easy. Uh, <laughs> I think our email address got hacked the other week. So <laughs> we all want to be shouting about that on the internet. Anyway, yeah. cool. We'll leave it at that. Thanks for listening. Hope you made it to the end. And uh, we'll we'll be back with something else soon. Cheers. Thanks, everyone. Cheers, guys. Cheers.